Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. For those of you who are long-time listeners, you'll remember historian Dan Waters, who was a regular on the show. Dan died at the age of 95 in 2016, and I only met him for the first time when it was his 80th birthday, and he was the president of the Royal Asiatic Society here. Dan was remarkably fit and was still jogging around the peak well into his 80s. I miss Dan. We'd just get aboard a tram and see what we could see, except with Dan, that meant a story on every street corner. Perhaps from his own life, he came to Hong Kong in 1954 and taught technical education. He was the fifth generation of builders in his family. Or we would head up the escalator, and he would also remark on local traditions, which he knew well through his wife Vera, formerly Vera Chan, who set up a Hong Kong beauty and charm school and is famous for her collection of Cheung Sam. Dan also had a good general knowledge of Hong Kong's history. In this programme, I've picked out segments from three Dan programmes from about 10 to 12 years ago. In the first one, Dan talks about Chinese funerals and death in Chinese culture. Then we hear about Eurasian comprador and businessman Sir Robert Hortung, before I joined Dan on a tram to Kennedy Town. One thing that used to interest me very much, I came here in the mid-1950s and I taught at a college in Wanchai, which has since become the Polytechnic University. And it was very close to a funeral parlour, uh, which at that time was in Wanchai Road. In 1967, it moved to North Point. I used to go along there and have a look at the ceremony that was going on. And one thing that specially fascinated me were the funeral processions that used to take place in the street in those days. Uh, you had these, what they call far pie, which are flower signs and bamboo frame, flowers all over with the name of the dead person and also uh, with other compliments and things like that, uh, that he's gone to a better world and things like that. And these really used to intrigue me. Uh, I can remember, some of them were very long. I can remember hearing of one in 1880, which took one hour and 13 minutes to pass. Uh, the longest one I remember was Sir Robert Hortong, who was the richest person at the time. He died in April of 1956, and that was a quarter of a mile long. quarter of a mile for a funeral procession? That's right. And interspersed in the funeral procession were 16 bands, and the uh, all brass bands. The bandsmen had, had uniform. Some of them were white, some blue, confederate grey and they were blazing away. Everything looked very, very Chinese, except for one thing. And what was that one thing? Well, the music. They were playing Western music. And two tunes I can remember very clearly that they used to play, two old favourites. One of them was uh, Abide With Me, and the other one was Yes, We Have No Bananas. <laughs> Yes, we have no bananas at a funeral procession. Right. Why should they play a, a tune like this? Well, very few people, of course, knew uh, the words. So Not so much English. That's right. And the reason, of course, it was a jolly good rousing tune to send a person on their way. <laughs> this was first class to send a person on their way. And I often thought that a Chinese funeral procession like that was a, a good way to go. You know, it was a good way to go. Funeral processions were done away with in 1967. 
Uh, why? Well, of course, traffic congestion. 67 was the riot year, and with demonstrations going ahead and funeral processions, traffic was held up, so they were stopped in 1967, never to be uh, resumed. But get moving over to more uh, about a case of actual death, I can remember in one... I've been to many Chinese funerals in my time, many, many of friends and relatives and things like this, and one funeral service I can remember of uh, close relatives, I can remember the telephone ringing at uh, 11 o'clock at night and three daughters being summoned to the hospital uh, to see their uh, ailing mother. When they got there... Uh, she died. And so, of course, they all walked around the coffin and they, uh, uh, in unison, they cried in love and de devotion for their mother. And uh, also, it was a sad occasion. And uh, one of them said to the other, we may not be sisters in the next world, so we must be good to each other. And they cried like this, grief, displayed grief, Oh, for about five minutes, something like that. And it was switched on and it was switched off. Grief was something that they had to do, they had to display. But also there was another purpose as well. Beside displaying grief, which all Chinese are supposed to show, uh, it was also to call down the gods from up above to uh, do what they are supposed to do on an occasion like that. So actually by making more volume... It's to draw their attention to this death. That's right, exactly. Dan Waters talking about Chinese funeral traditions there. In this next segment, I join Dan at Hong Kong Cemetery in Happy Valley at the grave of Eurasian comprador and businessman Sir Robert Ho Tung, who, as Dan just mentioned there, was at one time the richest man in the city. Born into poor circumstances, Sir Robert Ho Tung would rise and help found Hong Kong land. He was also a major philanthropist. Well, we are by the grave of Sir Robert Hotong. Uh, it's a lovely spot. Uh, reminds me, for example, in England you have yew trees, made the longbow from yew trees. In Italy, you have the cypress. But in Hong Kong, you normally have the frangipani. Why do we have the frangipani in places like the Hong Kong Cemetery, where we are? Well, they're a decorative tree low spreading branches but also a lovely smell and it's supposed to take away the stench of death this is one of the reasons why we have it here this is the grave as we say of Sir Robert Hortung the last resting place of the grand old man so we've moved away from the noise of the thoroughfare past the jockey club here in Happy Valley. Up the top of the cemetery, we've got a little bit of drilling, but uh, as you say, here amongst the frangipani and the other trees, there's a little bit of peace here at Hong Kong Cemetery. So tell me, who was Sir Robert Hotung? Well, I was in England in 1954, waiting to come to Hong Kong, and my future boss was on leave, and he drove around, and he told me a few essential things that I needed to know. There was bad water rationing, we had a bad typhoon every seven years, and also he told me the richest people in Hong Kong, they were not Britons, they were not Europeans, they were in fact local people, and that rather puzzled me, who were these local rich people? I came to Hong Kong and they said to me, unless 
you sign the visitors book at government house you won't get an invitation to the Queen's birthday party at government house on the 21st of April so I signed the book and duly I got the invitation I was very pleased when I was there because I saw the grand old man Sir Robert Hortong and we had a few words this was the garden party in April 1955 he was uh, reasonably tall he was slim and uh, even then of course he was getting on then he was past 90 in those days and he wore Chinese clothes a long flowing Cheung Sam male's Cheung Sam he wore a bok bow which is a skull cap and he wore a marqua which is a uh, Chinese waistcoat and the old man was extremely dignified uh, he impressed me very much and he was supposed to be everyone didn't know how much he was worth but on the other hand everyone felt that he was the richest person in Hong Kong What made him so powerful? Who, who was Sir Robert Holtung? Well he was from rags to riches he was uh, first generation Eurasian his father in fact was Charles Bosman now Charles Bosman some people will tell you he was Dutch some people will say he was Belgian. Why the discrepancy? Well, in fact, Belgium only started from uh, 1830. So where he was born and brought up originally, that land was originally Dutch, and then it became Belgium. So that's the confusion. He, Charles Bosman, he lived with a Chinese woman, and he had several children with her. And after a while, he was naturalized British, and after a while he went back to England and he in fact is buried in England in London in the uh, Brompton Cemetery. So what was Charles Bosman's in, uh, interest in Hong Kong? He was a businessman. Dutch. So, so same as many of that era there were Europeans who came here, European men, they would take a Chinese wife as such but often you know it wasn't a real marriage, no. it was cohabiting. That's right, um, they lived together. And they would have children and then what, what was his involvement with his children? Probably not much. Well, according to some of the descendants, he didn't do much. He was very much an absentee father and they didn't see him much. And to a large extent, he was brought up by the uh, mother. She looked after them. She kept a boarding house and her name was C. And then, of course, Bosman went back to England and died and was buried there. But she apparently then had children with another man. So Robert Hortong starts life as the illegitimate Eurasian son of a, of a, British, of a Belgian businessman yeah. and uh, a Chinese mother. So what were his chances, really, in that era? Well, he seemed to get on very well. He went to the... Uh, attended the British school. And, of course, therefore, he had good English. He wouldn't have spoken it with his mother, but he had good English. And, first of all, the first job that he got was, in fact with the Chinese Maritime Customs, but he only worked there for a couple of years. And then after that, he went as comprador to the uh, Jardine Matheson. So describe to me what the role of a comprador was. They were more or less middlemen. They had to have good command of both languages, both English and also uh, Chinese as well. And they were responsible for all the staff. And supposing anything went wrong or some of the staff misbehaved, the 
owners of the business, they wouldn't go to the member of staff and tell him off or dismiss him. They would go to the comprador, and the comprador would act. He was responsible for all the staff. So he was a very important and very influential man in uh, Chinese society. And he soon rose up very, very quickly. But in actual fact, he left Jardine by the time he was 40. And he started doing business on his own. And he started doing business to a large extent in real estate. So he goes off to work for Jardines and then sets himself up as a businessman. But surely, as a Eurasian in that era, in the late 19th century, he would have faced quite a bit of prejudice here in Hong Kong. Oh, there was without doubt. All Eurasians received prejudice up to the Second World War. It, it eased a little bit. Then after the war, when I came even in the 50s, there was still prejudice. But on the other hand, as I say, he was an influ influential man. He was a powerful man in later life. And money talks. Fair enough. That's the reason, yes. to a large extent. And uh, most Eurasian chose. Uh, they chose to go the Chinese way or they chose to go the European way. Some went one way, some the other. Uh, he wore... European clothes for a year or two in his early life but for most of his life he went the Chinese way and in fact uh, there was a, a member of staff in the education department where I worked for example and uh, she was uh, uh, there for many years and she was his, his daughter uh, she died a few years ago and she said my father went the Chinese way at home we spoke Cantonese, uh, we lived by the Chinese calendar and we also had Chinese customs. So you say until the age of 40 he worked for Jardine and then he set himself up as his own, well his own man, That's he was right. a businessman and uh, what kind of products? What well to a large extent real estate. So uh, already he was uh, finding out what makes money in Hong Kong. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. They used to live at one stage in Seymour Road. And then later, of course, the whole family moved up to the peak. And the Hortong family, uh, Irene Cheng and the people that I knew, I worked with other people as well in the education department who were Hortong's descendants. All of them lived on the peak. And that was the first family which was not European that lived on the peak. And of course this uh, special reservation was done away with in uh, 1946 after the Second World War. So Sir Robert Hotung, how did he get his knighthood? Well, because he was a very generous person. That's really the main reason. He gave money, quite a lot of money for example, and Sir Robert Hotung gave has given quite a bit of money to Hong Kong University. Uh, he set up in 1954 the Hua Tong Technical School for Girls, for example. Dan there on the life of Sir Robert Ho Tong. And now for the rest of the programme, I joined Dan at Central to head on a tram on a rainy morning to Kennedy Town. I have great affection for the tram. When I came, it was rather different. When I came, it, there were two classes. There was, on the lower deck was 10 cents, and on the upper deck was 20 cents. And uh, that now, of course, is $2. When you first went on the trams in the 1950s, were they like these, or were there some differences? Similar, except they were divided for the class, as I say. Uh, there was first class and second class. And uh, now, of course, it costs you to go from one end to the other, uh, it cost, you know, what was 20 cents in those days on the top deck, 
10 cents on the lower deck. Now it costs you $2 for an adult. Adult. I, of course, pay $1 because I am a, you know, a... Um, Distinguished uh, older gentleman. Uh, that's right. <laughs> it, yes, that's a better way to put it. And, I mean, you have a journey there of uh, well over an hour. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, it must be uh, one of the cheapest forms of transport, I would have thought, in the world. That's right. It started, in fact, the trams here started rolling in uh, uh, 1904, and they tried to get them earlier. Oh, by the way, we mustn't miss that. This building here, by the way, you know, is Western Market. It's a lovely old ribbed brickwork building, and it's on the lines of um, the uh, market in, in, in London. Covent Garden and it's period shopping in other words you've been in there haven't you you yes, know it yeah. very well and they have a lot of shops which sell material and also they have restaurants and I thoroughly enjoy going there they have some beautiful arches that was built that was completed in 1906 and it's the northern block is left along Connaught Road along there uh, there used to be in the 50s and 60s a lot of very low-class boarding houses now those boarding houses, uh, in the evening and at night, a lot of middle-aged women would uh, street walk outside and they would take their clients inside into these boarding houses. They were there until, oh, late 60s, early 70s, something like that. Now why am I telling you this? I'm, I'm telling you this because when the Japanese attacked, about three weeks after, they took possession and there was... Um, hostilities had finished then there was a notice went round and that notice was that all Europeans had to assemble in the Murray Parade Ground. Where was the Murray Parade Ground? Well it is where Cheung Kong Centre is now and they had to assemble there and they were then marched to those boarding houses and they were kept in those boarding houses, women and children and people like that, kept in those boarding houses for five or six days to humiliate them, in other words, being kept in what had been brothels. And then, of course, afterwards, they were moved over uh, by transport in trucks. They were moved to Stanley. Well, it's early morning. It's a bit of a dull morning, actually. Uh, we decided to take an early tram at seven in the morning just to avoid the crowds, but we've had quite a rainstorm overnight, so still it seems almost as if the lights are just coming on in the shops. We're heading into Devo Road West now. That's right, we're heading into Devo Road West. A lot of the shops are not open uh, so early, and if you have a good nose here, you can usually pick up salt fish. Can you smell it? My, oh, my, yes. my nose is not as good as yours, mine is too old. But anyway, Vera's grandfather had... So your wife, Vera? My wife, Vera, her, her grandfather had a salt fish shop. And they were lucky in many respects because they were here right through the war, right through the occupation, and they could use salt fish for trading and getting other forms. They could use it for barter and get other forms of food. So now, with salt fish, what do you do? You cut it up very finely. That's right. And, of course... It's also reputed to give Chinese, by the way, cancer of the throat and that sort of thing. So you have to be very careful with it. It's considered to be a cheap form of food, in other words. Now where we are in Devo Road West, with a lot of these dry food shops, as you mentioned, the salted fish, uh, these, ha have they changed in any way since when you knew them no, in the 50s? They are remarkably similar. 
to what they were like when I first came here. Uh, Vera used to live down here at one stage when she was a child. So is this where you did your courting? To, to some extent, yes. Now some of these buildings of course have changed, they've gone way higher, but we do occasionally see the uh, the old traditional shop house. Yes, uh, there used to be a street further down here. Almost every single building was a sh old Chinese style shop house. You know where the house over the top projects right over the pavement. But I'm sorry, but the whole lot have been pulled down. There isn't one of them left now. It's very disappointing. And also on a rainy day like today, it also affords you absolutely no protection on the pavement. That's right. And this style of course has spread and you also see them in Southeast Asia in other places as well. You see them in Singapore and Kuala Lumpur and other places like that. Now there is a, used to be an interesting shop along here, opposite the police station, which was built in the late 1950s. And uh, it's still in Davao Road West. But they used to have in the window for example, they specialise in curing Hong Kong foot. Hong Kong foot? Yes, uh, which is athlete's foot in other words. And also on the top of that, uh, they also had in the window a jar of pickled piles, I can remember, hemorrhoids, you know. Oh, God! <laughs> Al alcohol. But I think Pickled piles? They, they, I, goodness, though, there was a display to show that that, that was a good place to go for treatment for piles <laughs> but it's no longer there I looked for it the other day they, don't, they haven't got the uh, pickled piles the jar of alcohol with the piles which have been cut out they're not there anymore no <laughs> local historian Dr Dan Waters and I are travelling along on a tram today the trams were built or started here in Hong Kong in 1904 uh, we're just heading off down Devo Road West, so we're heading from Central on to Kennedy Town on a trip where we're just looking down at the streets, well, just to see what we can see. That's right. These trams, of course, they do special trams now, which are open top, some of them, and you can hire them and have parties on the tram. Yes, I've, d I've done that a couple of times, actually, and it's great because, actually, when you stand on the top of the tram, or on the, yeah, on the upper floor, you're actually at the level, as you go along, of the second floor of, of all these types of shops, which mostly are hair salons, so you have an opportunity to, right. to look inside. And you can also get married on the tram as well now. You, the marriage ceremony can take place on the top deck of a tram, which I suppose is rather nice, you know. We came along there past the department stores. The, the era of the department store seems to have died down a bit now. Daimaru came here in the 60s in uh, Causeway Bay packed up, Japanese department store, uh, Soi Hing was another department store packed up, the Sun department store is packed up, but yeah. Sincere and Wing On seems to be doing quite good business. So back in 1954 when you first arrived, were any of these kind of Wing On, Sincere, Daimaru, were any of those already existing? Oh yes, yes. There were four large department stores and the Wing On, Sincere, the Sud, there was another one. Uh, and uh, they did very good business and they were the place to go. Many people went there. But there were no shopping malls in those days, of course. And there were no supermarkets when I came. Now, we're getting down well now. Now here, there used to be two very large restaurants there. This is uh, Sektong Joy. Sektong Joy. Sek, sek means stone. Tong means pool. 
Joy Main's mouth. It's a sort of a big stone promontory, but on the other hand, it's disappeared. It's no longer here. But you know, getting down here, they've tried to do something. There are quite a number of small parks here in uh, Western District and in uh, Kennedy Town, quite a number. But I went there, I can remember going there years ago to uh, those two big restaurants. There was the Guangzhou and there was the Gumling. And I went there, I can remember in this July of 1955, because it was the building contractor's special dinner to recognize the uh, patron saint of building. Luban, Luban, seafood done, in other words. And uh, they always had a very big dinner every year, and they still do. So the patron saint of building, uh, so, so he's a god or he's a saint? Uh, well, he was a patron god, Chinese god of building. And uh, we had a very big dinner, and of course we paid homage to Lou Barn at the start of the dinner. In fact, further down here in Kennedy Town, up the hill, there is the uh, temple there. It's the only temple in Western Street, funnily enough. There are... So in Western District? Western District. It's the only temple there. And on his birthday, they go there every year. That takes place about in July, sometime in July. So what does Loban mean? Loban, that's the name. And uh, he was the uh, inventor of a kite that could take a man up to the sky. He invented various carpentry tools and things like that. So he existed? Supposed to have existed. He was supposed to have existed as a real person uh, before he died and then he was made a deity. And uh, as I say, he's still worshipped today. Uh, he is about 500 years BC. Uh, he's more or less in the era of Confucius. And so before concrete? Oh yes. Uh, cement came in when? Cement came in <laughs> in uh, something like uh, uh, 1830, something like 1824. We've talked before about bamboo scaffolders. Yeah. Uh, I mean, is this, you know, so this is the, the deity for, for bricklayers, for... Yes, for, for the four, they talk about four trades in building. Carpentry, the wet trades such as bricklaying, plastering, there's painting and there's plumbing, you know. They talk of the four trades. And he is the patron saint and also for, for what do you call it, for bamboo scaffolders as well. He's also their patron saint. Okay, okay. Okay, thank you very much. Of course, while we were on the tram, the weather was dry as a bone. Now that we've got off, it's tipping down with rain. But that hasn't deterred us. Uh, we've just walked 10 minutes down from the last tram stop where we got off uh, at Kennedy Town. And uh, Dan has brought me to a monument that I've never known about before. Yes, it's uh, the Dunhua Smallpox Hospital, Infectious Diseases Hospital. You can see it was... Uh, uh, established in 1910 and if you look here there is a stone laid at the time 1901 the stone was laid and if you see it says here if we can read it out the arch and the foundation stone were once part of the Dunghua smallpox hospital completed in 1910 not far from this spot it was just up the hill as a matter of fact in 1938, the building became the government infectious diseases hospital. 
and was demolished after the Second World War because we didn't have so many infectious diseases after the war. I can remember, for example, in 1961, there was a bad outbreak of cholera and uh, several of us had injections, but many people were too busy, so they set up stalls in the street and there were one either side of the Star Ferry, for example, no tunnels in those days, and people used to roll up their sleeve and have a jab, which gave protection against cholera. I can remember the odd occasion of bubonic plague, very little now, but by and large there was no need for the infectious diseases hospital anymore. My thanks to my late friend and programme regular Dan Waters aboard the tram to Kennedy Town. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>